What's up? It's episode 19, Pain Points of Wealth. And we've got a lot to cover on the show today. We're going to talk about the reopening of the economy. We're going to talk about those big mega cap tech stocks. What's the deal there? Tesla now going to be part of the S&P 500. So a lot to cover. In addition to that, we're going to talk about products Wall Street loves to sell you, loves to scam you with, and to avoid at all costs so you can create the best portfolio that gives you the odds to win long-term to create your wealth. So let's hit it. We got a great show this morning. I think you're going to dig it. Bring the music on. Welcome to the Pain Points of Wealth, the podcast that addresses the pain points that come with creating, growing, and sustaining your wealth, giving you a multi-generational perspective from three pains in a pod, Bob Payne, the boomer, Chris Payne, the millennial, and Ryan Payne, the generation somewhere in between. Hey guys, rotation, rotation, rotation. That's the call of the week. I mean, it's probably the most talked about event in 2020 other than the election. Yeah. And that's like, what does that even mean, right? I mean, we love this Wall Street jargon and get all these strategists on TV talking about this big rotation. And when I think about rotation, I think of Chris just moving his shoulders to get them loose again because, you know, he turned 40 this year. But, you know, when we're talking about rotation, what it really means is money has been moving out of these big tech names and it's been moving into other stocks like value stocks. And when I say value stocks, I mean stocks like financials, energy stocks, because energy prices are going up. And we talk about the proverbial reopening of the economy trade, right? Money going into cruise stocks, airlines, hotel stocks, anything but tech, basically. Yeah, right. You know what? That's a good point about me turning 40. I have to stretch an extra 15 minutes every day just to get loosened up. And you know, it's funny, six months ago, eight months ago, I was getting a lot of calls from clients talking about how they wanted to be out of the market. They wanted to sit in cash. Well, guess what? Now it's gone the other way, getting a lot of calls to go back into stocks, especially like these big dividend payers on the value side. So it's definitely a lot of rotation here. Well, you know, here's the thing, guys. You know, I told you for years, right? Back in the 70s, the first investment strategist that uh, I studied under told me that stocks outperform bonds and bonds outperform cash, so buy stocks. What he didn't tell me, and what I now know, is that stocks of smaller companies outperform the stocks of larger companies, and they're relatively inexpensive relative to larger companies, and inexpensive stocks outperform expensive stocks. So it's not just owning the S&P 500 or owning stocks, it's making sure you're diversified. And boy, did that pay off last month. It really did. And I think this is one of these little secrets on Wall Street that we try to uncover on this podcast is we look at probably, let's say, 50 to 100 portfolios a month, right? We see how everybody in the world's invested. And it's funny, like you just said, small cap stocks actually outperform large cap stocks by a mile long term, right? Like something like 500% over the last 20 years for small cap stocks versus over 200% for let's call it the S&P 500. Yet, Bob, Chris, we never see anyone have a lot of small cap exposure in their portfolio. Why do investors miss the fact that there's all these other great opportunities out there when they're investing their money? Well, first of all, guys, here's a little pop quiz. Over the last 100 years, when you break down the stock markets into size and style, what is the best performing style class over the last 100 years? Uh, small cap stocks, Bob? Well, actually, even more definitive, right? It's small cap value or small company value stocks. And I will tell you of all the portfolios that I have reviewed in 45 years, less than 1% of the portfolios that I have reviewed had even a dime in small cap value stocks. 
And they were up huge last month. Okay, guys, that sounds great. But if I'm listening to this podcast, what the heck is a small cap value stock? Like, what does that even mean to me? Because I'm sure if I'm listening to this right now, large cap, small cap sounds well and good. But what are some examples of what a small cap value stock would be? So we can actually understand how to put that into our portfolio. Well, a good example of a small cap stock would be companies like Spirit Airlines, Denny's Corporation, US Steel. Those are all examples of stocks that are in the Russell 2000 index, small cap companies. Well, first of all, I think that the other thing to realize is that a small company is smaller than a large company. So most likely... Back to the basics, Bob. Yes. I'm really getting basic here, guys. But most likely, you haven't heard of these companies because they're under-owned, they're understood, and they're under-evaluated, where Wall Street spends most of its time over-analyzing large company stocks that anybody can analyze. You know, Apple, Amazon, McDonald's. I mean, come on. how hard, You don't need a PhD to figure those out. But when you start to see companies that are growing rapidly, that are selling inexpensively, good things happen to stocks at low prices. Yeah. And you just mentioned, Chris just mentioned companies like Spirit Airlines, Denny's Corporations. Okay. Now I don't have a PhD in finance, but these are all companies that would benefit really, really well if the economy reopened, right? Like I'm going to fly more if the economy reopens. So Spirit Airlines is going to benefit. I'm going to go out to dinner. I'm going to go out to eat more. We know how much Chris loves Denny's. He loves the fact that they always have those games at the table when he can eat. And you can have breakfast at like one in the morning. So that's the beauty of this is not only are they less expensive right now, but also they're the companies that benefit from the reopening of the economy. And you guys know, you can't invest in the future. You've got to invest in these companies now before that reopening happens. You know, here's the thing, guys. You know, the vaccine is real. And according to a recent report from one of the major Wall Street firms, about 1.3 billion people will be vaccinated by the end of the first quarter. I mean, that's only three months from now. You have, you know, 25% of the planet will be vaccinated. So by spring or early summer, we're going to have herd immunity and people are going to be able to fly and go out and eat and spend money again. And that's going to have a huge impact on the market. Well, you know, not to mention too, Dad, like the fact that high dividend yield equities actually trade right now at a big discount to growth stocks. So, you know, not only are those companies paying out great income, they're also pretty cheap right now too. Well, I'll tell you what's not cheap is Tesla. And I can't believe how many people are forced to buy Tesla at the highest valuation of any stock I've seen in my career. Makes no sense at all. Why has everybody got to buy it, right? Well, this is the sucker trade of the year for all retail investors. And the sad thing about Wall Street, and that's why we're here to educate the public, is Wall Street basically sets up the game so that you lose. And we can tell you right now, if you own the S&P 500, you think you're diversified, right? Hey, I buy the 500 best companies in America. If the economy reopens, like we're talking about here, well, I'm going to make a lot of money. But you're not. Because right now, the S&P 500 is made up of a lot of mega cap companies that drive that index. And we know the names, right? Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Apple. And now, Bob, on top of that, and Chris, they're going to add Tesla in there at a monstrous value. Because on the day that it goes into the index, which will happen by the time this recording is out, $80 billion worth of Tesla has to be bought into these indexes. So if you own the S&P 500, you're being forced to buy it at the highest price. Well, Ra, I wish you'd have told me that 13 days ago because the stock was 47% cheaper. Well, and that's what's happened here, right? Is all these investors are like, man, let's buy it now because all the indexes are going to have to buy it from me in two weeks. And who's going to get left holding the bag? You, the investor that owns the S&P 500. And that's one of the reasons why it's so important right now 
to re-diversify out of the S&P 500. That's not the reopening trade per se. Yeah, and think about it like this. As a, you know, My favorite top six is boating. It's a lot like a boat that has a hull and it fills up with water. That water tends to favor one side and eventually the boat will capsize and sink your ship. Chris, that's why I wasn't out on your sailboat all summer. So the question is, okay, if the S&P 500 is not the way to play this reopening trade, you know, what is the reopening trade and what does it mean and how do you benefit? Well, first of all, the economy is going to explode once everybody's out there allowed to spend. Even without half the economy open right now, total American net worth rose to $123.5 trillion in the third quarter, guys. $123 trillion. Back in 2007, right before the market peaked, you know, before the Great Recession, we were only at $70 trillion. Now we're at $123 trillion. Our country's the wealthiest it's ever been. They've got more money in cash. they got more pent-up demand. And the last I checked, all of my fellow baby boomers love to spend. The tipping point. We pinpoint the pain point having the biggest impact on your wealth right now. And if you like our content, you're into our content, please give us a like or subscribe. We're trying to get the good word out there. And please rate us. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, things that you'd like us to cover and our topics. We love feedback. We want to get better at the podcast. So don't be shy. Leave a comment below. So gentlemen, with the holiday season upon us, I thought we could discuss this season's most popular financial stocking stuffers. So for each of these financial instruments, tell me if you'd like to have this in your stocking this year or you wouldn't. And one that we hear a lot about gets pitched on Wall Street all the time or from Wall Street are annuities. So Bob, what about an annuity? Would you want that in your stock as it was one of your stocking stuffers? You know, guys, as I always say, there are no good investments. The really good news is there's no bad investments either. The only investment you really need to have is what's appropriate. And for some of you, an annuity is very appropriate, but it should not be the only investment you have in your portfolio. No, that's right. Because a lot of times you can get what you call an income stream for life. And that's a very attractive sounding thing. I'd love to have income for life. So if you guys want to send me checks every week, you know what? Let's just do it. Let's start that after this podcast today. But the problem is with an annuity is you a lot of times have to give something up. And in this case, it's usually your principal. So in exchange for getting an income, you give up your principal. And to your point, Bob, maybe for a portion of your portfolio, that can make sense. To put all your money into an annuity and make your portfolio illiquid, per se, is probably a very, very dangerous strategy to use. You know, Chris, all my trust fund clients tell me that I should never give up my principal, but my firstborn is not a bad idea to get rid of. I couldn't agree with you more, Dad, just as long as you don't get rid of your middle child, your favorite. But that's a great point, Ryan. And another type of annuity that you really want to be cautious about is something called a variable annuity, which allows you to invest in stocks and bonds in the form of these things called sub-accounts. Now, in my opinion, the most dangerous thing about these is that they're very high in fees. And in some cases, I've seen fees as high as 3 to 5% per year. And if you think about an average return over time in the markets, markets tend to return you 10, bonds return you 5. When you have a 3 to 5% headwind to contend with, that's not going to get you great returns in the long run. You know, Chris, I can't agree with you more. I think what you guys are saying is that all annuities are not created equal. So what you want to be certain is, if you have an annuity, that it's appropriate to your goals, to your dreams, to your portfolio. And I have dreams, Bob. So how about Apple stock, guys? You know what? Warren Buffett owns Apple. The stock is rock and rolled. Everyone owns an iPhone. Maybe I can just put my entire net worth into Apple stock. What a great stocking stuffer. What do you think? Well, your mom, you know, she, she's so healthy. She thinks we should invest in more fruit companies. <laughs> Clever, Bob. Clever. But you know, in all seriousness, 
is, I mean, does it make sense to own just like a company like that? We know has a great business model. It's obviously gone up a lot, especially this year. Does that make sense to have that as the main holding in your portfolio? Well, and Ryan, in general, I would say having all of your money in one stock, you take on what's called individual stock risk. Any company in the world can go to zero, can go out of business. Although I don't see Apple going out of business anytime soon. But the other risk that you take is that you've got a company right now that's trading at a very high multiple. The price of the stock is very high. It's done outstanding this year. So I guess the big question is, is this stock going to continue to run on the trajectory that it's running given its high prices and high value? You know, my rule of thumb, guys, anything that goes up 100% in six months doesn't typically go up another 100% the next six months. So I think it's probably uh, not a bad company to have owned, but there's probably better opportunities when you look for something in terms of value, dividend yield, or upside appreciation. Good point. And even Warren Buffett took profits on a big portion of his Apple stock this year because he knows about rebalancing and rediversifying. We should all do the same. Which brings me to that next investment, guys. And I'm going to give it a euphemism, a high-yield bond. But we all know a high-yield bond is really what we call a junk bond. Should they be in our portfolio? Does it make sense? Because the yields are more attractive. You tell me. Well, I don't think Warren Buffett's investing in high-yield bonds. To me, you know, bonds are something that you're lending money to an institution. You want to make sure that you're lending money to the highest quality institution because last I checked, the most important part of a bond is the return of your money, not a return on the money. So reaching for yield and junk bonds, not something I would recommend to put in your stocking this year, guys. I totally agree with that, Dad. And you know, when I talk to prospective clients and clients alike out there that have owned high yield bonds, the comment's always the same. Well, look at the rate of interest I'm getting on these bonds. And my comment, my response to that is, yeah, the interest is great, but what happens if you lose your principal? That's certainly not going to be made up in interest payments. So definitely would not want to own high yield bonds and certainly don't want to have junk in my portfolio or yours. Well, that's a good point because it's all about this rule of thumb that I have. It's if it's too good to be true, it's actually a bobism, let's be real, then it probably is, right? If we know interest rates are low right now and you all of a sudden you're getting an interest rate that's a lot higher than what the market is per se... Well, there's got to be right flags there. And I've had this experience with a client once who was getting a 7% yield over in Europe in a bond. And I said, that sounds a little high. You know, We're only getting 2 3% here in the US. They wired their money out of the account. They put it into this foreign bond. And lo and behold, it was a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> so you, know, you really have to question if you're getting something that sounds too good to be true. You know, The laws of investing say it probably is. Well, how about whole life insurance policies? It's kind of one of these hybrid policies where you know, you build up this cash value inside as like an investment, it grows tax deferred, and then you get this big death benefit later on. And I know a lot of my friends, Generation Xers, end up buying these, especially in, if you're in the financial industry. Like those Northwestern salespeople call you endlessly to buy these things. Do you guys like them? This is something you should have as part of your portfolio? Well, I think it's a whole different issue. When you're talking about investing, Investing with an insurance company is the worst place to possibly invest your money because insurance companies, last I checked, make a lot of money investing your money. So as an investment, it's a horrible idea. Insurance is a necessary evil. If you have a family of an obligation, you have to have income replacement. Insurance is the way to go. Whole life policies I like over any other type. Dad, I agree with you. I mean, I think insurance is a necessary evil, but I don't think necessarily a whole life policy is the answer. You think about insurance, it kind of fills the gap between the time where you are now and the time that you're financially independent. Maybe a better way to go would be to use like a term policy where you're just renting the insurance and paying a lot less premium. Yes, exactly. Because here's the irony of those whole life policies. Usually the death benefit is bigger later. And if you think about it, that's counterintuitive. Like you're a millennial, Chris, I'm generation X. You probably, if God forbid something happened to you today, 
you probably need more insurance now than ever because you may have young kids, you're going to have tuitions to pay, you probably have a big mortgage. And ideally, when you get older and you've saved, you'll have enough assets that you don't need insurance anymore. So why not just rent the insurance while you need it instead of having a huge life insurance policy when you're in your 60s and 70s, where realistically at that point, you probably don't even need the insurance anyway. That's why I always thought it was a bit, maybe I can call it ass backwards, doing a whole life policy. Well, Ryan, as a millennial, I just expect good things to happen in the future. So it doesn't matter if I own insurance or not. That's why Chris, Bob, and I are way more practical than you. But you know, it comes with age. Hey, guys. Well, look, you insure your car, you insure your house, you should insure your life. Best way to do it is do it in the context of an overall plan. There is no right or wrong answer here. It's what's appropriate once again. And just to come full circle here, and that was beautifully said, Bob, is we talked about the S&P 500 index during the first segment of the show today. And I think this is a really important point right now. By owning the S&P 500 right now, you're not really diversified. That's my take on it, guys. Would you want this as your stocking stuffer? Hey, guys, pop quiz. How many stocks are in the S&P 500 index, by the way? 500. And how many companies are there publicly traded globally? I think it's like 13,000, something like that. Yeah. So why would you limit yourself to 500? The whole idea is the only way to really mitigate risk is diversification. And risk, when I talk about risk, is volatility. The markets go up and down and you can smooth out that volatility, make it less stressful to invest by diversifying your holdings. And you know what? Sometime in the future, maybe like next year, there's going to be a number one performing stock that no one's ever heard of. You have a better chance of owning that stock if you just limit your choices to 500 or maybe 10,000. I don't know, guys. Call me crazy. I like diversification over specificity. Bob, Chris, and I have now spent a collective 70 years helping individuals just like you with their planning and investing. This is literally what we do every single day. Everything we teach you here on this podcast, along with some due diligence on your own, can help you get ahead financially at any stage of your journey. But if you have over $500,000 saved and you want a more hands-on approach and guidance, you can apply for a free financial review. Simply go to www.paincm.com slash financial plan or click the link below. We can put together a full audit of your investments, the fees you're paying, tax optimization, and a complete savings and income plan to ensure you're on track to achieving financial independence. Simply go to www.paincm.com slash financial plan. See if you qualify for a free financial review. All right. It's the hidden facts of finance, random financial facts that may surprise you or even shock you. Chris, Airbnb shares more than doubled on their market debut on the NASDAQ stock market two weeks ago. And DoorDash certs 86% all in its first day of trading. Is this a bubble? Right. I think anything that goes up 86% in its first day is more than likely being very overinflated. So I would say yes. So Bob, speaking of Bob's, the sale Bob Dylan's songwriting catalog to Universal Music Publishing Group was announced last week. The price wasn't disclosed, but it said it was sold between $300 and $400 million. It's good to be Bob Dylan. Wow, three hundred to four hundred million dollars. Somebody like me wants to hear somebody else sing those songs other than Bob Dylan, right? I know you love him, but I can't stand the way he sings. His songs are beautiful. I can't wait to hear somebody else sing them. And it hasn't gotten better with time. <laughs> so, Chris, Elon Musk recently just leapfrogged Bill Gates to become the second richest person in the world. Musk's net worth has risen over a hundred billion dollars in twenty twenty alone. 
Wow. Well, you know what, Ry? I would say that now more than ever is a good time for Elon Musk to become a client of pain capital management. He has a very underdiversified portfolio because 20% of his portfolio is in, guess what? Tesla stock. So I think you should pick up the phone and get him in for an appointment. Funny thing is, Chris, I've been calling him week after week, but he's not returning my calls. I don't get it. Doesn't he know I'm the president of pain capital management? Bob, Disney said it would reach 300 million to 350 million subscribers worldwide by fiscal year 2024 for its major three streaming brands, Disney+, Plus, ESPN+, Plus, and Hulu. That compares with 137 million now, which is kind of remarkable given that Netflix has 195 million subscribers today. You know, Rye, 2024, I was hoping to have one or two of my grandchildren as subscribers to Disney. Any progress on that area, guys? I'm still waiting. I'm getting razor focused, Bob. 2021 is my year. So let's see what happens. Chris, as of the latest reporting, the 5.9 billion Barron partners and Barron focused growth funds have nearly half their assets, 43% and 40% respectively, invested in the car maker Tesla. Man, if you're buying a mutual fund, and you don't know that half of it's in one stock, that can be a little bit risky. Well, you know what, Ry? If I were the manager of that fund, I would suggest that now more than ever would be a great time to start rebalancing. I'd be curious to see if he does it because this Ron Barron made this huge bet on Tesla and was right. He was loving that stock when it was trading like back in the day for maybe 600% less than it does today. So it's all about not when you buy though, guys, as we know, it's when you sell. So Bob, BlackRock's president, Rob Capito, oversees BlackRock's biggest entities including the $2.3 trillion iShares exchange-traded fund franchise, which happens to be the biggest bond fund ETF manager in the world. Ironically, during an interview, he was asked what he invests in, and he didn't own any bond fund ETFs, but instead owned outright triple tax-free New York municipal bonds. Wow, that's amazing, right? This guy sounds like every stockbroker ever met. You know, I'll sell you something that is not appropriate, but pays me better than invest in something personally that uh, is better for me. So it's just amazing. I've seen this happen over and over again. But he's right. If you own bonds, you should own the individual bonds, not a bond ETF. They're very dangerous, and they're going to be the biggest disaster of 2021. And it sounds like the fiduciary rule only applies to him. Yeah, Dad, it kind of reminds me of back in the day when you were the big producer, quote unquote, one of the biggest firms on Wall Street used to tell me stories about how you would handle these investment salesmen that would come into your office. Yeah, these wholesalers haven't changed, right? They would come in, pitch their wares, and I'd ask them one simple question. Hey, if you really like this investment for my clients, show me a statement and show me how much you have invested in your own portfolio. They never came back. It was crickets. Chris, overall, nearly half Australia's total export earnings come from selling to China up from less than 10% as recently as 2002. Well, you know what, Rice? So many of my clients over the years have expressed dissent about the fact that we own China and overall emerging markets in our portfolio. And it just goes to show you that, that China is definitely moving forward. It's definitely moving up. And right now, if you look at emerging markets in general, they're up about 12% for the year. So I think the prospects for China and the emerging markets in general are pretty good. Bob, TV sports blues. NBC was perhaps the hardest hit this Thanksgiving typically a big day for NFL viewership. The Ravens-Steelers game, which originally cost advertisers an average of $1 million for 30 seconds of commercial time, drew only 11 million viewers, almost a 50% decline from the audience for last year's Thanksgiving game on NBC. Well, it's simple, right? The Eagles aren't very good this year, so nobody's watching. <laughs> that was the most Philadelphia-centric comment I've ever heard. And only someone from Philadelphia would believe that anyone else cares about the Eagles. Well, listen, guys, another great podcast. 
And if you like our podcast, you're digging it, please subscribe, give us a like, put a comment below, tell us what you want to hear, what we can improve on. We love your feedback. We want to interact with you. Another great show as always. Stay loose and keep an open mind. Thanks for listening to The Pain Points of Wealth. Hopefully you found the ideas discussed in this episode valuable and useful for your own financial journey. You can find out more about Bob, Brian, and Chris's firm, Payne Capital Management, at BeBullish.com or through the contact information found in the description of this episode in your podcast player or app. Join us next week for another episode of The Pain Points of Wealth, brought to you by Payne Capital Management. Information provided on today's show is provided for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed.